listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured Episode 117. We're talking in this episode with Barbara Madaloni. She is president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and we're going to talk about the future of teacher unions and labor under Trump. But first, the news. This week, those of us who are enraged and frustrated by the outcome of the election could take to heart the fact that we're not alone. Following a slew of anti-Trump protests across the country, the Fight for 15 campaign launched a fresh wave of rallies, strikes, and civil disobedience actions in dozens of cities. While these protests have taken place periodically for several years now, the latest eruption of anti-Trump pro-worker fervor celebrated a few new developments in an otherwise grim political season. The National Employment Law Project reports that since the Fight for 15 protests began in 2012, low-wage workers have won about $61.5 billion in raises as pending state and local minimum wage increases are implemented and more private employers are raising pay scales on their own. Overall, these wage increases affect some 19 million workers nationwide, thanks in large part to major minimum wage hikes in New York and California. Now, under a Trump presidency, the chances of raising the national minimum wage to anywhere near $15 is fairly dismal, but it just goes to show you that with grassroots mobilization, there's a lot that can be achieved on the state and local level and even at your own workplace. This week's protests also included many airport service workers and Uber drivers representing a growing movement of contracted non-employee workers who are pushing for better labor conditions as well as union representation. Since many rideshare drivers are considered independent contractors, organizing is a particular challenge for them and has brought them into legal disputes over their employment status. I spoke with Uber driver Inder Parmar, who has been involved with the New York City-based campaign to organize rideshare drivers and cabbies, led by the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. This is the first time that Uber have really participated in these protests um, in this way. So what is it about now that you think is making Uber drivers mobilize? Till last year, when I was making $3 an hour, I was easily making like $14, $15 an hour. I start cutting my prices down. That's the time I will start looking, and we other drivers got together. We start looking. Like last February, we protested in front of Uber office because they had dropped our price another 15% at that time, you know. And uh, that's the time I got in contact with Bharvi Desai, and now she keeps us posted whenever something is happening. And if I can make it over there, I will make it over there. And that's how she told us. $15 movement is there. If we, some drivers would like to join, we said, yep. And a lot of drivers came there. What do you think about Uber's policy of not considering drivers like you to be their actual employees? Um, they see you as an independent contractor. What do you think about that? They tell us we are independent contractor. They control each and every movement of us. Okay. They are, the only reason they are calling us independent contractor they want to get away from employee benefits. If you ever get a chance, you read their contract, it is worse than being an employee, but still they don't want to treat us as an employee. If I say no to a customer or I get into a fight with a customer, I will be deactivated. I'll be in the loss of thousands of dollars, but I am still not their employee. 
They can fire me anytime. They can hire me anytime. If I'm an independent contractor, how you can fire me? Okay, I have to work with their rules, but I'm still not their employee. You see workers, everyone from fast food workers to、uh, childcare workers,、um, a lot of people out protesting,、um, all unified in this call for fifteen dollars an hour. How, how do you feel about the current political climate in the country, and and why do you think it's maybe important、uh, to be protesting today now that we've had the election and we're looking at a different kind of political landscape? With a minimum wage of the nine dollars an hour, it's very hard for anybody, as I I am with the two kids, whose whole expenses I'm taking care. Of. My wife is working full time too in a bank. You know, it is very very hard. When these people will make fifteen dollars, at least they can have extra food in their table. They can buy extra clothes to their kids. Maybe they can give better education to their kids. They can buy. Little bit extra to their kids and to their own families. They can take care of their own families a little bit better than what they are doing today. And I think so. The whole government should help us, you know, in the food work or in airport or air, I was I have was talking to people. They are baggage handlers. These airlines are making billions of dollars in the profit. They are charging twenty five dollars for each baggage. Why can't these airlines get? Fifteen dollars an hour to their employees. They are the backbone of their business. The second half of the、uh, fight for fifteen demand is、uh, a union, right? Uber drivers. Some have been pushing for some kind of collective bargaining rights in New York and other cities. Are you hoping to get that? And and how do you think your work would change if you were able to form a union? If we form a union, the next time when Uber wants to discount the price, they will ask us. Now Uber wakes up in the morning. Hey, let's give customer fifteen percent discount. They don't even tell the drivers. Drivers find out through the media tomorrow morning. Uber is discounting fifteen percent. They they do not. If they call us Uber partner, if I'm a Uber partner, why didn't they? Why didn't they discuss with me? Hey. We want to discount fifteen percent. Should we do it or should we not do it? Will it hurt you or will it not hurt you? If I'm Uber partner, I went to their office. I said, if you call me Uber partner, I'm asking you. I gave fifteen percent discount. Why don't you give ten percent discount? Recently, Uber、uh, claimed it was、uh, creating a system that was sort of like a union for drivers, where drivers could be represented. But it would not be a formal union and not be formal collective bargaining. What do you think about that move by Uber? Basically, Uber will hire few people. The, they will be paid by Uber. They will be they will be working for Uber. But on the face, they will be saying, "Hey, we are working for drivers." I would like to find out if they hire few drivers over there. They have all the people in the office. They do not have one person working in that office who has driven. Taxi one day. The workers at the Momentive Performance Materials Plant in Waterford, New York, have been on strike now for a month, and they, in fact, spent Thanksgiving on the picket lines. I spoke with John Ryan, a former executive board member at IUE CWA Local 81359, and the former chief shop steward at the plant with 25 years of experience, about the causes for the strike and the solidarity they've been feeling from the community.
Uh, basically, it started when uh, the sale we got sold in uh, around 2006. And uh, we negotiated the first contract with, with Apollo and the, the new momentum in uh, 2007. Within one year, they broke that contract in 2008. And in 2009, they put in implementation the breaking of that contract, which uh, about half the plant cost us uh, approximately anywhere from 5 to $10 an hour hourly rate. So that we filed an NLRP complaint in 2009 for making the unilateral change, which was illegal. And uh, we were going to have a trial in uh, 2009, but the company, they asked us if we would uh, put off the trial and see if we could get a new contract in, uh, for 2010. So we went to negotiations. We tried. We uh, didn't really, we, we couldn't really agree. And out of that contract was a settlement agreement for the NLRP case. There was a, uh, they had to pay back wages from uh, 2010 until uh, 2009. But in that, with the new contract, they were able to put in their uh, wage reduction, which again was uh, approximately uh, 5 to $10 for people. Mine was about uh, 6 or 7 I still haven't got back to that level yet. That was the first bad contract in 2010. And then in 2013, it was another round of cuts that they went for that got passed. Uh, in that one there, they took away our pension, not mine, but anybody that was under 50. And with that, there was a small raise, and that was 2013. Our local, again, just like in 2010, voted it down. Right. But the other two unions made it pass, like last contract in 2013, passed by nine votes. So fast forward now to 2016, and here we go again. They want now they want uh, they want to cancel uh, our retiree health insurance. They want to take away part of the enhanced 401k that they gave to the people for taking away their pension. They want to take away our uh, uh, TDPHP, which is a good health insurance. They want to take that away from us and throw us into a consumer plan with, uh, you know, higher premiums. And it was just another disaster contract. And this time, finally, everybody had had enough, and they voted it down. In the process of all this, we're going to take a wage cut from us and doing away with pension and and uh, making, you know, health care more expensive for us. They also filed uh, bankruptcy, and they cut over $3 billion in debt from their bankruptcy. And so you guys have been on strike now since November 2nd? I think this is like 29 days yeah. since uh, yeah, November 2nd. So tell me how um, how it's been out there. It's been great. It's amazing the, uh, it's amazing how to get out what solid area is going on in our uh, union members so it's just they're all out there they're enthusiastic mm-hmm. they uh they're tired of being uh, stepped on and they're they're committed to uh, staying out until they get a uh, reasonable contract for people who aren't familiar with momentum tell me about what you guys do in there it's a chemical plant so mm-hmm. it requires a lot of uh, a lot of training so we make uh, personal care products for uh, that go to like Procter and gamble and they make uh, shampoos and things like that out of uh, we make clockers. They're under GE's name, but they're actually, we make them. Those are the type of products. We work uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We work uh, eight hour shifts. Typically, most of us end up working 12 hours a day a lot of times. But uh, so it takes a lot of training, first right. of all, and a lot of, you know, experience. And now they're bringing people in, you know, they're saying they're, they've got a money equipment that takes years to do properly. So there's, there's absolutely no way they are operating in a safe manner because. You know, these people just couldn't learn. I mean, you know, five officers put the entire community in jeopardy of uh, 
a chemical spill, and they've had many of them since we've been out. Yeah. And, you know, risk, you know, risk further catastrophe. I mean, we had explosions there where people almost died, you know, while I worked there. And we've had people die in the past before I worked there. You know, it's not, a, it's not an easy place to work, and you can't just bring people in like that just to try and break a strike. And that was John Ryan of IUECWA, local 81359. A judge in Texas seems to be so enthused by Trump's win that he's not even waiting for the inauguration to roll out the legal red carpet for the president-elect. A Texas federal court blocked an Obama administration labor rule that would have provided a major boost to the income of about 4 million workers nationwide starting on December 1st. Under the formed rule, the formula for calculating the eligibility threshold for overtime pay for salaried workers would be adjusted so that lower-earning salaried workers could qualify for time and a half if they exceeded the 40-hour work week. The Labor Department had long planned for the rule to take effect at the end of this year, but now its future is in limbo because Trump may well kill the whole thing. It's just a small preview of what the labor movement may face in the coming months as Trump unravels the incremental gains that low-wage workers fought for and managed to push through under Obama, such as new fair pay and anti-discrimination safeguards. The overtime rule was seen as particularly crucial because it helped update the outdated exemption for low-wage workers when they were technically classified as managers or supervisors. Many of these management-level positions, in fact, differ little from regular hourly wage workers. They're often basically just glorified frontline fast food workers wearing a different uniform. And they don't qualify for overtime even when they're doing basically the same kind of work for over 40 hours. Under the new rule, the threshold would have grown to nearly $50,000 of annual income, or about $900 a week, so that managers earning those incomes could finally get their due for all their uncompensated hours. The overtime rule, as well as the extension of minimum wage protections for home care workers, were two of the reforms that the Obama administration pushed through as executive actions to address long-standing gaps in federal labor protections for precarious workers who have seen their wages and job security erode in recent years, especially since the recession. Since many of these initiatives were implemented not as legislation, but rather as administrative actions, Trump could easily repeal them once he's in office. Don't! And it's likely that it'll appoint conservatives to the National Labor Relations Board, which could undo key rulings under Obama that enhanced unionization and collective bargaining rights for many low-wage workers. Those are now also in danger. And for now, the Labor Department will appeal the overtime ruling. But once Trump is in office, workers should brace for a deeply hostile climate in Washington. And in the meantime, check out ongoing efforts to stop the misclassification of workers so that they're not wrongfully labeled managers when in fact they're basically just workers like everybody else. Thanks to the Walmart workers organizing, the past four Black Fridays have been days of protest as well as of shopping. We've covered the changes in the new in the Our Walmart organization over the years, and this year, just in time for Black Friday, Our Walmart released its new app, WorkIt, designed to help Walmart workers talk to one another about their issues in the workplace. We have, of course, also covered the question of whether organizing via the web or via an app is possible or a worthwhile effort. Walmart itself, at least, seems to consider it enough of a possibility to be warning its employees away from the app. But our Walmart, which has already used social media to build its nationwide organization, is betting that workers will jump at the chance to communicate with one another directly about the company's confusing policies and the problems they encounter on the job. 
Some two dozen current and former Walmart employees worked to design the app, which is available for Android smartphones, and relies on IBM Watson technology to answer the most common questions workers face. Watson was trained by the workers themselves, who will also work as volunteer peer experts through the app. Arrow Walmart used its now traditional Black Friday push to promote the app, which is a model that the organization is hoping will be licensed and emulated by other worker organizations. As it rolls out, we will keep up with this story and bring you more information about how it's going. You can find more information about all this and all the stories we discuss on today's episode at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. On election night, when all seemed lost, as we had discussed last episode, there were, in fact, several positive notes. In Massachusetts, one of those positive notes was a ballot initiative that would have allowed charter schools unlimited access to public funds was voted down decisively despite being supported by the state's governor and a good bit of outside spending. Barbara Mattaloni, the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, was part of the effort that won that fight, and I talked with her about that struggle and how it and the work of the now strong public education movement provide a basis for resisting Trump. You know, on the one hand, everybody's reeling because we things have just been exposed, and there's, you know, a, a whole, I guess, a heightened level of danger in terms of what we're up against, you know, around yeah. right to work issues and immigration issues and women's issues and Black Lives Matter. Um, and so there's that. And, you know, on the other hand, I don't know that the answers to what we have to do have changed at all. We have to do what we need to do with a heightened sense of urgency. But, you know, it's about more than ever uh, just going down and making yeah. sure that, that, in, that rank and file is the union and is experiencing themselves as the union. That's step one. They yeah. are um, knowing their power, using their power, because it's absolutely essential, you know, yeah. both for our long-term project of creating a more economically and racially just world and for the short term of uh, being able to keep union structures alive, which are the path towards that uh, economically and racially just world. At the same time, we have to really focus on coalition building and deepening our relationships with students, parents, uh, across labor and our communities to sort of both create the vision that we want, you know, name a vision that is a real vision for what we want our communities and our schools to look like, and then organize to claim that. And so, you know, it's it's overwhelming in part because we know that the only way that we're going to get where we need to go is through lots of local conversations and local organizing that ultimately get knit together into something bigger. And that can, the, the, the steps we have to take are, are the steps we have to take. We can't jump there. Here in Massachusetts, obviously Massachusetts didn't, like as a whole, the state didn't go to Trump, but clearly there are plenty of, of Trump voters and you have a Republican governor right now. So can you talk a little bit about what the, um, I guess what the run-up to this election was like? Were you guys experiencing signs that people, that you know, the, the Trump groundswell was growing? The run-up to this election for us here in Massachusetts was all about the uh, ballot question to raise the cap yeah. on charter schools. Yeah. And so 
you know, they're, they're sort of in the background thoughts and comments about sort of where are people in terms of the presidential election, but we knew that Hillary was going to win in Massachusetts, and we knew that our we had to build the coalitions to fight to preserve public education. I think the really positive thing is that we did build a coalition to fight to preserve public education, and we're going to, we've, you know, already met, say, how are we going to use that as a foundation upon which to not only continue to fight for the schools our students deserve, but to broaden that coalition around larger questions of economic and racial justice. So I feel really fortunate that we had the fight for two because it gave us a chance to, as I said, like lay down the foundation for a movement, which is the movement we're going to need to push back against Trump and his policies and, and practices. Like we, I keep saying to people, boy, can you imagine if we were here and we hadn't had this fight and we hadn't met each other in the ways that we've met each other so that we can continue this work. What's interesting post-election is to look at the map in Massachusetts. In some ways, Massachusetts is as divided as the rest of the country. So even though Hill won by, I think it was like 6139 or something like that, she lost in significant places. And she won because she the places she carried, she carried them so overwhelmingly. Right. And then there were lots of places where Trump came in, you know, generally like just 50 to 40, 51 to 49 or something. But so that tells us that there are people out there that we have to figure out why they voted mm -hmm. for Trump, what that means. Yeah. And I, the way I am framing our struggle right now is that we have to take the righteous position and know clearly where we stand. And we have to do that in the context of figuring out how we're going to talk to people who don't understand our position. And I'm not talking about Trump. We, we, yeah. you know, I'm not interested in him, but I am trying to understand the people who voted for him. For people who aren't familiar with the resolution, um, can you tell us what that was, the charter school res resolution, and then a little bit more about the, the coalition work that, that defeated it? Right. So this was a uh, ballot question, which if it were to pass, would have uh, allowed for a raising of the cap on charter schools in Massachusetts. We currently have a cap on the number of charter schools. Uh, it would have allowed for 12 new charter schools to open every year, each year in perpetuity. It also would have allowed for the, we have a cap on the percentage of uh, district funds that can go to yeah. charter schools. It would have exploded that cap, so there would have been no limit on the percentage of district yeah. funds that could go to charter schools, which really opened the door for, you know, takeover of entire school districts and the destabilization of public education throughout Massachusetts. Six months ago, the polling showed the question winning something like 57 to 36 or 34. The, the forces on the S campaign uh, spent $26 million to try to win this. It was the most expensive ballot question, I think, ever in the country. It was funded primarily by uh, Wall Street hedge fund managers, private equity firms, the Walton family, and more than 80% of that $26 million is dark money. We don't even know who funded it. It was also supported by our governor. So right. because we had sort of leading up to this, we had a coalition, the Mass Education Justice Alliance, that was meeting to talk about charter schools and about 
uh, hyper accountability and high stakes testing, we had a, you know a, the loose structure of a coalition that was ready to deepen and organize in order to fight this. Uh, yes. So our steering committee for the campaign included NTA, AFT Mass, Boston Teachers Union, NAACP Northeast Regional Office, Boston Education Justice Alliance, members of a youth organizing out of Boston, Citizen for Public Schools, which has been opposed to testing uh, for a long time. So even the steering committee represented the sort of strength of the coalition that we were building. And we went out and, and we won because we knocked on doors and had phone calls across the state. And it's sort of amazing how much this is about conversations. We won because parents stepped up and joined educators in the struggle because labor was totally unified in this and really came out strong for us. Uh, and what we discovered that I think is important to the ongoing struggle now that we have with the president-elect is that people really value public education. And even people who send their kids to charter schools are conflicted about the degree to which they're sort of making an individual choice, but they don't want to undo something that's for everybody that they really value. And I think that's a key thing for us to remember and hold on to. The narrative that has been propagated under neoliberalism is that we think for ourselves, should think for ourselves, and need to be thinking about choice and competition in terms of how we enter the world and create our communities. And we really discovered people actually want to join together to fight for the common good. They just want our public schools fully funded. They don't want to end our public schools. And, and I think there's a tremendous hope in that, and there's definitely, like I said, a foundation from which we can now build. After the election, you put out a statement about what the role of schools should be after, you know, under President Trump, under a, a rising wave of, of hate crimes. Um, so, yeah, can you talk about that and how you see sort of public institutions like public schools? I, I was just had a few minutes yesterday to speak to at, at our conference, which was our Just for New Teachers conference. And what I said to them was um, education has always been political work. I mean, we, we are laying the, the landscape for the, world, for the world we're creating. We're making decisions that have to do with how we know ourselves in the world, what kind of action, questions we ask, what kind of actions we take. So it's always been political work. The focus and intensity with which we have to acknowledge that is now more present than ever because it's about sort of in the immediate terms of protecting our, our students and their families who are, 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 are threatened uh, by uh, the appointments that, that the president-elect is making, threatened by the things he has said and done. Uh, so there's an immediacy that, that is like, who will we be in making sure we defend our students and their families and make schools places of real, like, meaningful safety? But, but on the other hand, there's the larger political aspect of educating, which is how are we going to help our students understand this world right now, and how will we help them to to frame their understanding within the context of empathy and and a, and a really critical questioning of uh, of uh, structures of power, so that they have the courage and wisdom 
uh, and skills to to speak back to oppressions. That there there is there's a demand for us right now as educators to really think about how we're going to do that and to talk to each other about how we're going to do that. And I think it's very scary for a lot of people because we haven't done it. Uh, but history shows us that it really is especially important for educators to, to find a way and to be leaders in creating spaces where we can preserve the possibility of democracy and, and freedom. You know, one of the things we're staring down the barrel of was the, the Friedrichs decision, which, you know, Labor got a, a reprieve when Scalia died, but mm-hmm. now it's like, you know, the next appointment. And so teachers unions in particular and public sector unions were already in the crosshairs. And so I guess I'm wondering um, if you had, if what was going, what kind of work you guys were doing looking at the possibility of a, a Friedrichs going the wrong way and what lessons there are from that that, like, I guess, basically need to be implemented, like, yesterday. This, in one sense, the landscape has changed because it's now, like, it's going to happen. Uh, right. In another sense, like, it's what we needed to do anyway, which is that we really have to, at the local work site, building site level, have members clearly experiencing themselves as the union. And that means taking leadership at the union you know, not necessarily through elected positions, but in the kinds of actions that they take. It means experiencing the possibility of collective action around bargaining, but also around the day-to-day workplace issues that are really how we live our lives, uh, fighting for workplace democracy within the context of education, fighting for professional autonomy and respect and academic freedom. So we need to, we needed to do that anyway. We were slowly working our way through there, but, you know, we're trying to change a union that has lived a certain way for a long time, and that's a, you know, I think that's true of unions across the country, is how do we sort of change the culture of a union uh, in the context of what's basically an emergency right now, and and how do you do that in a way that's real, that's not just like more mobilizing efforts, which, which aren't going to sustain themselves in the long run, but a really deep building by building kind of organizing. You know, we we had been on a path to start to think about how to do that within the MTA. We need to build in structures to do that. Um, we need to not become bureaucratic in the way that we do that, uh, but find, you know, one of the beauties of the No on Two campaign was the degree to which it ha- it was structured, and it was also sort of a, a, a level, there was a level of controlled chaos to it because people got excited and picked up the issues and went and did work. That I, you know, I'd find out about it three days later that there had been some visibility somewhere or there had been a forum that somebody held. So we need to sort of keep educating people. We need to identify leaders and, and help them, you know, give them the tools to organize Within their buildings, we have to help people think about power and recognize how important it is to claim their power and use their power. And then at some level, we have to just sort of be also letting things go and be sure that we're letting people pick up the issues that are most relevant to them. I think that the controlled chaos point is really important because labor has not been really good at that. And there have been some glimmers of it, you know, with Trumpka embracing Occupy Wall Street and stuff, but like, mm-hmm. yeah, I want I, I want to like hear more about your thoughts on how labor can get comfortable with this sort of risk taking and 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 that kind of controlled chaos again. 
I don't know if we can get comfortable with it. I think we have to do because, uh, well, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I, I comfortable is probably the wrong word. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it really comes down to whether or not we're going to let rank and file lead or if we're going to try to say from the top how it's going to happen. And that means creating opportunities for rank and file to talk to each other about the issues to, that matter to them supporting them as they name what's happening to them so they develop an analysis of it and supporting them as they develop plans for how they're going to fight back and and take back uh control and and make the schools that they want and and so what we can do is create is really support the opportunities for doing the work and a lot of that is getting people to talk to each other cuz you know, especially in education, people feel so isolated and alone, and then they sit down in a room together and they, they discover that they're having a shared experience and they need help understanding that experience, analyzing that experience, and from that analysis, figuring out, okay, what, what do we need to do to build our power to change this context? So, you know, one of the things I'm hoping to do is just create lots of opportunities for that to happen in locals across the state that are ready to do that work. That, that's what I can do. And then to the degree that it, that it is possible and that people are ready to bring the community into those discussions as well. Yeah. So there's, there's not like one clear, like we're going to do here. I mean, one of the funny things about the No On Two campaign is I, I kept saying to people, we're doing this wrong. We are, we are going to be building union power top down with a, with a top down initiative. That's not the way it happens. Uh, that we were able to get as much engagement as we were, I think is because we, we at our best, made it a local issue, identified the local threat that charter schools represented. And also because what our members discovered when they went out and knocked on doors, when they uh, called people up on the phone, that, that besides the narrative of individual choice being a false narrative, in terms of what people want, the narrative of people not respecting educators was exploded. People were so excited to talk to our members about their public schools and about what they want for, for their schools. And so our, our members, in reaching out to the community, uh, began to experience themselves as powerful in a way that they had not had that for a long time. So we need to build on that as well. The labor movement has not had a great record on some of the issues that Trump really exploited. So I'm talking about immigration, I'm talking about racism. You know, it's it's only been in recent years that really, you know, labor leadership really just started to fight for immigrants. Yeah, I'm wondering how that gets to be a bigger and, and stronger part of this movement, you know, because that is that is clearly a weakness that Trump was able to exploit and probably in some union households too. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing we have to do, and that goes back to my remarks earlier about taking the righteous position, like we just got to stand there. It's it's our first duty right now in this context is to be really clear that we are going to protect our students. We're going to protect our students who are immigrants. We're going to protect our students of color. We're going to protect our transgender students. We're going to protect our female students. We are going to protect our uh, gay and lesbian students. I mean, the list goes on, right, because it's, they've really gone after everybody. Uh, but, but we as leaders uh, have to be really clear 
and as educators. But that's our first duty. And, and then we, but we have to do that within a context of, of saying, now let's come together and talk about what's going on here. Um, we have to, that's where the community conversations become really important. We have to learn how to, we have to create opportunities for people to listen and talk across their positions. Uh, but I think it, you know, my take, and I've been taking a lot of flack from the right wing from this for the past five days, <clears throat> because because I have taken a strong position that, that we have to protect our students and that something is happening that is dangerous for our students. We have to do that. We have to put the leaders need to put themselves out there and make that really clear. And, and then we have to go back to our membership and have really and have conversations with our membership. And and you know so there's there's taking a position. There's conversations within the membership, and then there's conversations with the community and. You know, the word conversations is sort of ruined. <laughs> I mean, they've ruined so many words. But, um, <laughs> but it really is, you know, that's what, you know, that's where organizing starts is, is by talking to each other and, uh, and then, and seeing if we can help each other name what's happening and understand, you know, develop an analysis that undermines the analysis that, that some people have been given in terms of who to blame. You know, basically, it's going to have to come down to an anti-racist, anti-capitalist position. We'll see if our membership, in the context of talking to each other, will be able to. I, I think we're actually close to that if yes. if we were more explicit about that. From your time leading the MTA, what are some things that you would just like the the broader labor movement, even outside of teachers' unions, to take from what you've learned? I guess I would say that when we create opportunities for rank and file to talk to each other and name what's happening to them and and develop uh, plans for action to change things, it is it is always remarkable and beautiful that actually it, it works. <laughs> uh, that that that. That, that people have ideas, that they have good understandings, and and they, you know, it 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 is it it works, and we have to sort of let go of our need to control what's going to happen, yeah. and really give people the tools to do the work. Um, I would also say that you know the coalition building is really complicated work. I think everybody knows that, and. And that the key to the coalition building is to stay in it um, and to be, like, brutally honest with ourselves as we're in it so that we, uh, as labor, uh, don't don't stop listening to our coalition partners uh, but learn from them about the work that we have to do. And that was Barbara Madaloni of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. You can check out more of their work through the links on our show page. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for Arg, I wish I'd written that. My pick for this episode is A Million in South Korea's Streets by Yong Chan Choi and Jacobin. 
South Korea is known as one of the great success stories of neoliberalism in East Asia. With its sophisticated, globalized economy, hyper-consumerist popular culture, and relative political stability, at least compared to its northern neighbor, it's basically the crown jewel of that whole section of the world. But lately, the darling of the Pacific Rim has been rocked by social upheaval in response to a major political corruption scandal. However, what's notable about this uprising, it's not the first to hit South Korea, is that it's not just the intrigue or the personalities involved, though they do touch on some tantalizing aspects of South Korea's twisted political culture, such as a weird New Agey cult leader who bribes and brokers with folks like Samsung and other shady Korean corporate behemoths in exchange for political access. Anyway, what's actually interesting is how this revolt has been led by an angry younger generation of radicals who are disgusted by a conservative ruling elite. It's a direct reflection of the frustration many South Korean youth feel as they face uncertain futures in an era of globalization, which is clouded by austerity policies, an extremely tight and hyper-competitive job market, and a kind of narrow-minded, creeping nationalism that is increasingly out of step with the global progressive movements across the world. As in America, there's a distinct sense that society is growing increasingly unequal and divided and that the broad mass of people are falling further behind, reversing many of the massive economic developments of the past 30 years. With President Park Geun-hye's approval rating down to an abysmal 5%, a disillusioned public is rebelling through mass rallies and strikes that at times seem less aimed at Park directly and more targeted towards corporate wealth in a tight-knit circle of her ruling elite cronies. The political insider, accused of working through the president to negotiate the bribes, is almost cartoonish in the way her privileged pedigree has granted her extraordinary influence. The author Choi writes, Choi Soon-sil has secretly participated in almost every important decision taken by the president, ranging from government ministry appointments to arms deals, as well as more trivial decisions, such as what colors of clothing President Park should avoid. Some media have compared her role to that of Rasputin in late Tsarist Russia. Her family members have enjoyed enormous and unusual power and privilege. She once posted on social media, having rich parents is personal power. If you don't have it, blame your parents. This sort of arrogance has proven particularly offensive to ordinary young Koreans, who face enormous competition and social pressure to enter higher education and acquire one of the scarce, decent jobs available on the market. Overall, what we're witnessing is a further rending apart of South Korea's tenuous modern social contract. The political scandals have transfixed the nation, but Choi also touches on political ruptures showing increasing unrest and a growing sense of deprivation and desperation among left elements of the labor movement. Choi notes that the 2014 Seoul Ferry disaster, which revealed a major crisis of impunity and lack of transparency in government, has also been similarly tied to the growing distance between the government and ordinary people. Increasingly, it's not just economic fairness they're demanding, but basic justice, especially as labor activists face growing oppression and violence from police authorities. The political evolution of South Korea in the 20th century is particularly fascinating because in some ways it mirrors that of the U.S. Like the U.S., South Korea's post-war economy exploded in the 1980s and 90s with global free trade and the rise of consumption-driven service industries. It's also been rocked by deindustrialization and other types of global economic turmoil in recent years. And it's also riven by very old lines of privilege and elitism that have always excluded the broad masses of people, despite the image of a meritocratic egalitarian democracy. 
And in recent years, younger workers have been seeing their futures slip further away thanks to the reckless economic and fiscal policies of the past generation. South Korea's movement to stop the U.S.-Korean free trade deal, in fact, was one of the strongest mobilizations in East Asia to resist the domination of international financial institutions and multinational corporations. And both the U.S. and South Korea have embattled labor movements that have been struggling to represent an increasingly restive, disenfranchised working class. It struck me that the Korean trade unions in Seoul were calling for a general strike at the end of November, just as various activist groups in the U.S. were calling for mass mobilizations against Trump. Both promising, except in South Korea, it looks like the protesters actually have a good chance that they might end up really deposing the president. And the difference seems to be that the current president in Seoul looks like she's in danger of being ousted by people power, whereas U.S. activists who are now rebelling against the president-elect are still struggling to gauge just how much support Trump has across the country and why he is so oddly popular in some parts of the world. I hope we're reaching the insight that many activists in South Korea already seem to get. It's worth noting that South Korea has less of a tradition of representative democracy, but maybe also less fetishism around elections themselves. And they've already arrived at the singular conclusion that's the really important takeaway. There's one law for the people on top and another for the rest of us. For now, we can despair and grieve, or we can organize. Donald Trump made a lot of campaign promises about ending the era of trade deals that incentivized shipping jobs overseas, and one of the key tasks for labor going forward will be attempting to ascertain how many of his supposed victories are in fact really handouts to bosses rather than to workers. This week, we heard a lot about the carrier plant in Indiana, scheduled to be shut down and its jobs moved to Mexico. Trump and his vice president-elect Mike Pence, currently governor of Indiana, are bragging that they've saved the plant through a combination of tax incentives, but the devil is in the details, and the loudest voice pointing that out is none other than former presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. In a first for Blaybird, we are arguing a former presidential candidate. In an op-ed in the Washington Post, Sanders challenges the Trump narrative on the carrier plant, noting that the deal keeps less than 1,000 of the 2,100 jobs that were scheduled to disappear, gives carrier tax and regulatory favors that the company has been asking for, and has excluded the workers' union from any deal-making. Furthermore, he notes, the deal is exactly the opposite of what Trump was promising to do on the campaign trail. Sanders writes, quote, Just a few short months ago, Trump was pledging to force United Technologies to pay a damn tax. He was insisting on very steep tariffs for companies like Carrier that left the United States and wanted to sell their foreign-made products back in the United States. Instead of a damn tax, the company will be rewarded with a damn tax cut. Wow! How's that for standing up to corporate greed? How's that for punishing corporations that shut down in the United States and move abroad? Apologies for my mediocre Bernie impression. He goes on to note that in essence, this deal does the very opposite of what a good strategy for saving jobs would do. It incentivizes companies to threaten to offshore jobs, taking states hostage for ever bigger tax cuts. And who would pay the high cost for tax cuts that go to the richest businessmen in America? The working class of America. United Technologies, which owns Carrier, Sanders notes, is far from broke. It made profits last year of, oh, $7.6 billion, got another $6 billion in defense contracts, and its former CEO got a $172 million golden parachute when he left. 
Sanders is, of course, promoting his own plan for an outsourcing tax and demanding that the federal government stop giving corporate welfare to companies that offshore jobs. And his argument is exactly the one that needs to be made in the face of Trump trying to play friend of the worker. Workers need jobs, good jobs, union jobs, and they also need well-funded state, federal, and local governments, not governments that are starved in order to give handouts to the ultra-rich under the pretense of helping the little guy. That's all for today. Thank you, as always, for listening to us. We appreciate your support over the past few years and looking forward under Trump. Keeping up with the ups and downs of the labor movement will be even more important. Thanks to everyone who signed up as a sustaining member and gotten your sweet tote bag. And if you have, send us pictures. You can do that now if you haven't already at DescentMagazine.org. You can also give a one-time donation. You can find links to everything we've discussed today at the Descent website. You can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you work at the carrier plant or another plant that's in danger of being shut down, if you are a teacher in Massachusetts or a Walmart worker or an Uber driver who went on strike for the first time this week or at Momentive um, for the last month, you can always email us, tweet at us, listen to us. We will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored.